I'm Michael Feeling, I'm lead pastor of Village Church over in Bartlett, and it is truly, truly my joy to open up God's Word with you. So if you have a Bible, a phone, open up Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we are finishing our five-week series on faith today. So um, I want to I ask you a question, which of my children's faith is more inspiring? Now, you're going to respond to one of my children, so beware. If you give me the wrong answer, I'll be offended, and this is going to get personal. Uh, my youngest, uh, we nickname him X. He's four and a half years old. Uh, X came out of the womb bold and courageous, ready to take on any fierce warrior info that could come after him. And so uh, X has this intuitive trust in me. Anything I tell him, he believes. So if there was a um, fierce samurai warrior, and I said, X, you could take him, go for it, um, X would get up, and he would go take this samurai warrior down, believing wholeheartedly, because my dad told me um, I'm going to take this guy down. He's convinced, by the way, he's stronger than me, smarter than me, faster than me, etc. My entire life, I feel like we'll be convincing him that he is not the smartest, fastest, best human that has ever lived. But everything that I tell my son, he truly does trust me intuitively, and it's actually a dangerous responsibility that I have. Now, my middle daughter, her name is Avia, we call her V. She has developed in the last six months um, some very irrational fears so that every time she goes to bed, um, she has a borderline, we'll just say, panic attack. Um, The first one is uh, she goes to bed, and if she can't remember where a toy is, she's convinced that she has swallowed it and that she will die in the middle of the night. So at about 10 o'clock at night, she'll be yelling, Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, and she'll say, I can't find my horse. Well, her horse is this big. And she says, I think I swallowed my horse. And I have to look at her and say, V, you have not swallowed your horse. How big is the horse? She's like, it's this big. Can that fit in your mouth? The answer everybody is... No. So every night, Via goes to bed, and these thoughts are going through her brain. So last night, she comes to me. She gets it in her head that she has lice. Um, And so I lovingly check her head for lice. She doesn't have lice. And uh, I look at her, and I say, V, tell me the truth. She said, I don't have lice. And she's, like, nervous. And I'm like, V, what's the truth? I I don't have lice. And then she looks at me wide-eyed, and she goes, but what if they crawled into my brain and they're in my head? And I'm like, could you imagine being a six-year-old girl, like, going to bed every night, petrified? And so the other thing is, every night, she's afraid there are bugs crawling all over her, and that especially the culprit is ladybugs. Oh, I know that. I understand that. Anybody's head itching? Yeah. I know. By the way, I have lice, but don't tell anybody. I'm joking. I don't. I don't. Um, so here's what happens. Every night she climbs up into her bunk bed and she is walking up there by faith, even though her heart is nervous. And she, every night she gets up into her bed and this is a decision. She must overcome her will, overcome her fear. And she believes dad told me there are no bugs that are going to eat me in this bed. I do not have lice and I did not swallow a toy that will cause my impending death in the middle of the night. Right? She gets up, she goes to bed. Now there's my oldest daughter who came out of the womb hesitant. Her name's Elliot. We call her Elle. Um, Elliot is um, by nature hesitant of everything. And so Elliot and I have a conversation on a regular basis that goes like this. I will do all things in my ability to kill fear inside of you. And so regularly, I am asking her to do what for most of you would be simple things, but for her, force her to face all of her greatest fears. So yesterday, we're at the doctor's office, and she has to go to the bathroom. And I tell her, walk out the door, go 20 feet down the hallway, and go to the bathroom. Well, immediately in her brain, all of these fears come up. 
What if the doctors tell me I can't do that? What if somebody looks at me and says, hi? What if somebody asks me a question? What if I go to the door and knock and someone's in there? <gasps> Panic attack, the world is going to be over. But for this little girl, right, to do this is requiring her to face every one of her social anxieties and fears. And so I look at her and she says, she looks at me and says, I need you to come with me. And I said to her, no, you're going by yourself. Go now. She is angry with me. And of course, she gets up, she goes, she knocks on the door, no one's there, she goes to the bathroom, comes back, everything's fine. She comes back and she is genuinely angry with me. And she says, why do you make me do that? And this is what I tell her every time. It is my responsibility before God to kill fear inside of you. And when your dad tells you there's nothing to be afraid of, I need to know that you're going to move and you're going to walk. Now, here's my question. Which of my kids has a more inspiring faith? The one who intuitively does everything I ask him to do or the girls who are petrified and on a daily basis are walking into circumstances where they have to overcome all of what's happening inside of their mind and their body. So now which one has a more inspiring faith? I'm going to be honest. My little ladies, my little ladies are way more inspiring to me than my little dude. Okay. Brave people. It's easy for brave people to be brave, right? It is incredibly difficult for fearful, hesitant, trepid uh, people to step out and to do big, bold, difficult things, which brings us to the book of Hebrews and specifically chapter 11, where the series is this author is dealing with a group of people who are discouraged, who are honestly oppressed, who are afraid because their association with Jesus is costing them something. And so here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, look, I need to inspire you to go out. And so he, he honestly gives this list of biblical characters that if you're not Jewish, you're probably not going to know who they are. And if you're not really knowledgeable of what's happening in Hebrews 11, here's what you're going to conclude. Every single man and woman in this list is brave and courageous and awesome and strong. And I've got some great news for you. The majority of them are morons. Okay? So if you ever wonder, can God use me? Uh, he uses morons all the time. Craig and I both agree. Like The fact that we get to be pastors is ridiculous. All right? And the fact that God would even allow us to stand up and preach his word. I mean, if, if you knew what my wife knew about me, you'd be like... Mm. This is strange. So let's define the word faith. Um, And so faith comes from a Greek word. um, That is almost it. So it should just be, go back. Anyways, I'll tell you the word. The word is pistis. Can you guys say pistis? I wouldn't say that. We don't do Greek. You don't do Greek. All right. Well, all you need to know is that this is my favorite Greek word. Um, You can clearly see why, because the word pistis is an unbelievable word. And uh, in the Bible, this word is translated as faith, belief, or trust. Um, And so it's interesting because the word can be translated in any one of those ways. But those are three pretty different words in the English language, faith, belief, or trust. Here we go. And so very simply, I want to give you what I've just been over the last five weeks trying to boil it down to the most simple definition. Faith is confident trust based on a reliable relationship. The reason my daughter, V, six years old, goes up into her bunk bed every night despite the plausibility of her swallowing toys and lice and bed bugs and all the other creatures she does not know exist. I will never let her see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You know that movie where they show you like the reality of the entire world as it really is? Never going to let her watch that. Confident trust based on a reliable relationship. This little girl gets up, she walks into her bed because daddy has proven himself to be reliable and trustworthy and true over and over and over again. My daughter, angry Elliot, as angry as she might be that she has to walk out a door, walk 10 or 20 feet and go to a bathroom, does it because here's what she knows. My dad has never let me down. My dad has never lied to me. I can trust what he says. I may not like it. I may go with a bad attitude, but doggone it, I'm going to do it. 
And this is what God wants to grow in us. God wants to grow your ability to move, your ability to do something for him. Here's what I know. Many of you, God has already and is going to continue to ask you to do things that make you really nervous. And that's okay. I look at my eight-year-old all the time and I say, I'm, I'm fine that you're nervous. I just don't want the nerves to win. Because when the nerves win, God loses. Because when the nerves win, you look at God and say, I'm going to submit to fear rather than submit to what you clearly want me to do. So the author of Hebrews in this section, he's writing to inspire his readers to a deeper level of faith. His readers are scared, they're embarrassed, they're hesitant, they're doubting. And the last section is uh, Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 39 or 40. And this section can be broken up into two categories. Uh, category number one, people who live in safe places. Category number two, actually, invert them, sorry. People who live in dangerous places. He's going to talk about what does it mean to be a man or woman of faith when the world around you is dangerous and affiliation, association with Jesus Christ will cost you everything. He's also going to talk about a context. What does it mean to live by faith when honestly, like here in America, it's just really, really easy to plant a church. Nobody's persecuting us. The government is enabling us. Um, public community centers are facilitating us. I mean, this does not happen everywhere in the world. I hope you know this. So right now, America is what we would call safe, permitted, and legal. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to plant a church, it's safe, permitted, and legal. But you go to North Korea, I want to just tell you it's not that way. It is unsafe, illegal, and Christians are hunted down. In China, the church is unsafe, illegal, and hunted down. In fundamentalist Islamic countries, the church is unsafe, illegal, and hunted down. In the majority, not the majority, in much of the world, um, the church is unsafe, illegal, and hunted down. And having faith in that context actually does look very different than what it looks like here in safe, safe America. Uh, in places of danger and persecution, the church, it has to be inspired to, in, to endurance and to suffering. If we ever got to a place where Christianity in America was illegal and you were being hunted down, this would be my sermon for you. Endure and die. Aren't you so glad that that is not the sermon I have to give you today? But there are pastors who are standing in front of their churches right now and saying, endure and die. And I get to look at you and say something very, very different. I get to look at you as believers in a safe context and say, uh, your job is not necessarily to endure or to die. Your job is to take ground while it's still safe. Your job is to be on the offensive, not the offensive, right? You hear the difference? (laughs) Your job is to be on the offensive because when things are safe and legal, our job is to take as much ground as we possibly can. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 16. This is uh, Jesus. He makes two promises. Number one, I will build my church. It's promise number one. Number two, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And on the surface, if you just see this text, you may fill in the blanks, but let me, let me just tell you the posture of the church. The posture of the church is not sitting there, weak and whimpering, saying, oh, hell, please don't hurt me. Satan, demons in the world, oh, no. The church actually here is not seen as being primarily defensive, but the church is seen as being primarily offensive. And so here is the imagery. The church is on the offensive going after the gates of hell. And here's Jesus's promise. Number one, I'm going to build it. And number two is you go on the offensive. I will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against you. You will knock them down because I am about building my church. And so when we are in safe context and legal context, this is what I believe the church's primary 
posture is. We take ground for God's kingdom. FYI, um, maybe some of you are new to this. Um, Village Church of Barlow was planted 40 years ago in a very safe um, community, the city of Barlow. And over the last year, uh, the Village Church of Barlow planted Village Church East. Why? Because the time is now to take ground. Um, so many churches are infighting and bickering. They're financially broke. They're yelling at each other. The congregational meetings are insane. That will not be the story of Village Church. So help me, God. So help Craig. That will not be the story of this church because there's too much time to waste bickering, right? Our job in this season, it is safe. This is a, the most opportune time for the church of Jesus Christ to begin to take ground. And so our desire is to plant churches, um, small churches, not big churches, because the, the new reality is that the mega church is on a downward curve and that churches and communities like this of two, three, or 400 people that are financially wise, doctrinally pure, and healthy culturally um, are the next group of churches that will do the most amount of damage for the kingdom of God in suburban areas like this. And so our desire is to see um, those kind of churches start to grow and plant and produce healthy cultures and, and to thrive and to see many, many people come to Christ. The time is short. I might die tomorrow. Craig might die tomorrow. Jesus might come back. I can't control that. Here's what I do know. Um, I want to be faithful. I want to redeem this time. And here's what I also do know, that one of the best ways I can honor my brothers and sisters who are getting executed, maybe 10, 20, 30, or 100 today, right here today in this world, is to not sit on my butt, go onto autopilot, but it is to redeem and take ground for the sake of Jesus Christ. And we get to do this together. So you're like, Michael, preach on Hebrews 11. Okay. Sorry, point number one in your notes, may you, church, Village Church East, may you be inspired to overcome. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. If you have a little bit of Bible knowledge, you may know David, um, you may know Samuel, Samson, you have like these kiddie stories in your head, right? Uh, let me just tell you something about the majority of the people on this list. They're morons. Like they really are not great people. All right, let's just, let's be straight for a moment. If you wanted to inspire somebody, would you pick an idiot to inspire them or a strong, courageous person to inspire them? What's the answer? Strong, courageous. The Bible's different. <laughs> the Bible's like, I feel like if we put these really amazing men in front of you, you're going to feel like I could never be like that. So here's what the Bible does. The Bible takes normal morons and he puts them in front of us and says, look what I did with this guy. If I can do it with that guy, I can definitely do it with you. And you're way less moronic than half these guys on this list. So let's look at them. Number one, Gideon. Uh, Gideon was a judge. He's a complainer, 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 doubted God could use him, tested God at least twice that we know of did not take God at his word. And even when he was obeying, he was still afraid and timid. Here here is his one act of faith. He went into a battle with 300 men, afraid and petrified, did nothing really. God won the battle for him. And now because he, with hesitation and anxiety and nervousness, went into a battle, God applauds him as a man of faith who's gone down in history. Like this is now his official legacy before the saints of heaven, a man of faith. Why is he here? That is a great question. Barak, not Brock, Barak, weak, would only follow Deborah, wouldn't make decisions. I mean, in fact, Deborah, who is the judge, she should be named in this list, not him. 
Now, I understand in 21st century American culture, this doesn't vibe, but let's just say thousands of years ago, it wasn't seen as manly or awesome for a dude to follow a lady. Okay, you get that? Like, this is actually seen as, as a sign of weakness for him. Really, you're going to make the woman go out and lead the army? You're not going to be a man and protect and provide? And so for him, he's seen as weak all throughout this. And here's his, here's his one act of faith. He goes into a battle with hesitation, and he does what Deborah told him to do. That's it. Why is he even here? Put Deborah in. Samson, immoral, violated every single aspect of the vow that he was under called the Nazarite vow, emotionally unstable, womanizer, rager, vindictive. Like, literally, none of you would be friends with Samson. If you met Samson, you'd be like, he's big, and I don't like him. That would be your final conclusion. He's a jerk. And so Samson is this guy who his one single act of faith is at the very end of his life, he tears down because he's in chains this entire building and kills a whole bunch of the enemies of God. That's his one act of faith. That's it. His entire life was, was spent being a moron. And yet he goes down in history, his legacy before the people of God and the saints in heaven is he gets the hall of faith. He gets to be one of the greatest, most faithful men apparently in scripture. We had Jephthah. Jephthah was a mighty warrior the son of a prostitute, which, by the way, in that day was not good. Uh, it's not good anywhere, but it's especially not good then. Surrounded himself with what the Bible calls, quote, worthless fellows. He was basically a raider, which means he was a, a gang leader who created chaos everywhere he went. He was made ruler over Israel because his little gang was so strong and he was a mighty, fearless warrior. But it did not appear that he was a warrior for God. It seemed that whenever it came to God's people, he was disconnecting from them and running away from them. This is the guy who made a vow in his hastiness and impulsivity. He said, whatever walks through those doors next, I will kill and I'll sacrifice to God. By the way, does God want human sacrifice? The answer is no. And so this we'll say theologically inept moron, says, uh, the next thing that walks to that door, we're going to sacrifice to God. And lo and behold, you know who it is? His only stinking daughter, the only person who's going to carry his name on. And so we don't know what the text really means. Craig says he didn't kill his daughter. I say it's plausible he killed his daughter. Uh, we got Gwen in the front who thinks he did. Should we have a vote? And then, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. We won't do that. Uh, no, but I see it's, the text is a little unclear whether or not he killed his daughter or she remained a virgin her entire life and never bore him offspring, which would have been one of her and his greatest shame. We don't know yet. My question when I read uh, the story of Jephthah is, why is this moron in this list? And then we get to David. Adulterer, murderer, absent father, deceptive, seemingly, actually not seemingly, absolutely, ignored all the law requirements of a king of Israel, just threw him out the window, did whatever he wanted, right? Now, let's give David some credit, though. Okay? Of all the guys, he might be the less moronic one. Although, let's be straight, if you're going to commit murder... Um, adultery, hide it, be deceptive, be a terrible dad. I might like you even say, you got some issues. Um, but there were these moments in David's life, these seasons in David's life where he trusted God. What's interesting is that God passes over all of his failures. And now David's eternal legacy before the saints in heaven and the people of now is this. He was a man of faith. You would never let David be your pastor. And yet, David somehow gets put in this list. And Samuel, I would say he's the highlight. His only major flaw that we can find is that all of his kids rebelled against God. 
Um, but other than that, Samuel is regularly doing the hard thing and trusting God. So here's what we got. Four out of six of them are morons. Five out of six of them, uh, well, are not wise men. You would not really want to put these guys on your list for being people of faith. And so here's what I just want to encourage you with is just this very simple encouragement. May you, may you be inspired in this season of safety to overcome self-loathing over your past failure and no longer defines you. And here's what I mean by this. Every single one of these men could have sat back and said, God could never use me because of my past or my current sense. And yet, with every single one of these men, God used them. And honestly, what's profound about how he used them is it's not like they did crazy, awesome things. What they did is they took a step of faith. Many of them did not have the character or the strength or the courage to do difficult things. And what they did is they took one step forward and God came in and he fought battles for them. He defended them. It was really, it's really interesting because I think in our brains, we tell ourselves a story. If you're going to be a pastor like Craig, you've got to be awesome. You have to be great. You have to be the best man in the room. You've got to be godly, the best racquetball player. Definitely not the best racquetball player. That's Matt Young over here. Um, <laughs> But there's this idea that we have, if I want to be used, i got to be better morally, ethically, spiritually than other people. And I think what's really interesting in Scripture is that what you find is that God does not necessarily want to use the goodest people. I know that's not correct grammar, but it works here. Um, but he really does want to use anybody, despite your past, who is willing to take a next step. That's it. These guys, Samson, he took one step in his life. And he is on this list. One step. At the very end, the last thing he did while he was breathing. And somehow in God's economy, um, this is a moment where because God saw his act of faith, God went to work for him. God fought, God fought for him. I think for a lot of people, what holds us back from being who God has created us to be is self-loathing over the past. Oh, I'm not good enough, whatever. I'm telling you, as long as that spirit defines you, you will never take a step forward. Now, for some of you, the step forward is going to be huge. And for some of you, it's just going to be very, very small. But I really believe some of the stories of faith that inspire me the most are when broke, weak, and weak, immoral, corrupt people take one step toward God. Like for me, that is honestly one of the most inspiring moments when somebody who has never, ever entered to a church, somebody who's hated Christians their entire life, they take this bold step to walk through the doors and they don't know what's going to happen next. And I really believe that those are the moments that inspire me the most when weak, broken, morally inept, bankrupt people, people who have screwed up, messed up their life, done terrible things, they take a step forward. And I just, I am convinced as I look at the stories of scripture that these are the people that God loves to go to war with, and he loves to fight and protect and promote. Verse 33 goes on. Um, Who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, that was either Samson or Daniel, we don't know which one, quenched the power of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword. This is the line I think that is really, really, really great. They were made strong out of what? Weakness. Weakness. So like, here's the, here's the point. If you're weak, you're usable. If you're good and strong and awesome, right? Probably before God uses you, he has to humble you. But if you're weak right now, you're actually ripe 
for God to use. You are ready. Even though you've done nothing for God in the past, I really believe that especially when you get somebody who takes those first major steps, these are the moments where God just comes alongside of you and he supports you and he fights for you. It was very powerful. It's interesting because Gideon, um, the only reason he actually obeyed, it seems that he took a step forward. And then here's what the text says about Gideon. The spirit of the Lord clothed him. That Gideon took a step and then the spirit of the Lord protected him and gave him the courage to take some next steps. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So you're looking at this, okay? If you miss this, you're going to miss the point. These men and women didn't do any of this. No man and no woman did these things. Who did them? God did them. And he did these things, not through amazing people with unbelievable strength. Every once in a while, God does use those people. But by and large, you break down the list. And these are weak people who are morons that took a step. I think most of us in this room, myself included, can relate to that. You look at Abraham, follow the guy's journey. Dudes, twice, he takes his wife, goes to Egypt, tells Pharaoh he's his sister, and almost lets Pharaoh marry his wife. Okay, ladies, if your husband ever did that, punch him. That's terrible, right? You, you look at these men, and they are just really honestly inept dudes stumbling through life, trying to figure it out. And then they have these moments, these moments where they say, I know what he wants. I'm going to take that step forward. And then God comes along, supports him, and then takes this moment, this snapshot of their life, and this becomes their legacy. Isn't that crazy? In our economy, here's what happens. Um, If you're a good person your whole life and you do one bad thing, that one bad snapshot of your life, that becomes your permanent legacy forever and always. Not so with God. With God, he takes people who are really honestly do ridiculous things, and once he finds faith in them, he's like, snapshot, this. This is you. This is what I know you're capable of. This is in you. This is what I love to see about you. So that when you act with faith, right, you think God is always relating to you out of your failures, but he's not. Well, we see in scripture that when God takes snapshots of our lives and looks at this picture over and over again, he takes snapshots not of our failures, but of the moments where we stepped out, we took a step, and we trusted in God. I love that, personally. I love when the Bible says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What? Does the word no ever bother you? Like, none? None at all? So when God, like, if God took a picture of me and he put it on his fridge, like, in my brain, it would be all of my dumbest moments, right? But God takes pictures, his snapshots of me are these moments when I am doing something, even though I'm afraid or petrified, but I'm doing something where I am choosing to trust in him. I am choosing to crawl up into the bed, even though lice are, you know, probably all over my body, or I'm choosing to go to the bathroom down the hallway. Like, these are these moments, like, I'm inspired by my little girls to do harder things things because I see how they trust me and I want to be able to trust God like that, even when my body and my mind tell me, don't do it. The second encouragement, maybe you, may you be inspired to overcome your fear and take tori- territory with God while you can. The harvest is ripe. We have no idea how long this season for the church in America is going to last. It might go for hundreds of years. It might be done in a year or two. We have no idea. We're not in control of the future. But here's what I do know. As long as we are in this kind of context, God wants to take broken people. He wants us to take one step of faith, and then he will fight our battles for us and take territory. It's interesting. My one step of faith might be 
sharing the truth about Jesus with a friend. Can I save that person? Say no. But God can go to fight. He can go to battle for me in that moment. And he actually, even though I just took a small step, what God loves to do is take those small steps and then go to battle. And then he can actually do the hard work in someone's hearts to see their life changed. I just want to encourage you. um, God knows you're weak. He knows you're afraid. And he loves to ask fearful people to do hard things. So if God asks you to do something hard, um, expect it. Because this is what I do with my daughter. Because here's what I know. Fear will kill my daughter. Um, One of the one-liners she will tell you, I know it's a little violent, but I will look at her often and say, Al, murder fear. Murder it. Kill it. Don't leave an ounce of it in your life. When you find it, go after it and do the opposite of what it tells you to do. You have to murder it. And I got an eight-year-old. That's a powerful word for an eight-year-old. But I want her to understand the deepest parts of her emotions that this will be the one vice that tanks her for the rest of her life. And so as a, at a young age, I want to take her and do this. If I'm willing to do that for my daughter, how much more is God, a perfect, heavenly, loving father, going to ask you to take some next steps? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking Elle to get on stage, am I? I'm asking her to go down the hall, <laughs> Right? And I honestly think for some of you, God's going to ask you to metaphorically go down the hall. And objectively, it's not going to be that big of a deal, but it's going to be right for you. And it's going to go right after the very thing that threatens your relationship with God, your trust in him. Number two in your notes, may you be inspired to endure. So on the other side of the world, uh, it's a very different reality. This is a part of the sermon that I really hope none of you ever have to apply necessarily, Uh, but it's something you can put in your pocket for Maybe the day when this happens to you or you find yourself in a place that you did not expect where your faith in Jesus is causing incredible suffering. So what happens in context where the church is persecuted is that from the outside, they look like failures. Um, They look like, where is your God? If your God's so strong, why doesn't he fight for you? Um, One of the questions I think that, that many people have is, okay, if God is so good, then why does he let millions of his followers be executed? Like, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Um, Their faith is not quenching fires. It's not conquering kingdoms. Um, Their faith costs them everything. It doesn't seem to overcome. It appears to be a losing faith. And so here's what it says. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. You got to pause on that line there. Under what circumstances would you be put in jail and they wanted to let you out, and you refused. Do you hear that? Like, that's crazy. There's something going on here that's bigger than our just obsession with safety. Refusing to accept release, why? So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. You don't ever want to be flogged. It would rip apart your entire back and leave scars for the rest of your life even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, which is where they would typically drop a very large stone on someone's head. This is oftentimes when you think of stoning, you think of people like 100 people throwing rocks at somebody. Probably not the case here. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins and sheeps, skins of sheep and goats. Why? Because they weren't accepted in their communities and they had to survive in the wilderness. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It's interesting because in one context in America, um, to live by faith means to go take territory. But in some contexts in the world, to live by faith means to die. 
And I read this and I'm like, I'm really glad that I'm not in the dangerous part. But I could be, right? Why? Have you ever wondered, like, why do we get to live in America? Like, why? There are billions of people in the world, and we get to live here. God picks, plucks us out, puts us in the safest place in the world. And yet, brothers and sisters, people not, I mean, little kids killed. Why? Because they're born in the wrong country to the wrong parents. One context says, go and win. The other says, go and die. How do I respond? I mean, I really believe that if you are a follower of Jesus... The absolute best way to honor the blood shed, not just of Jesus Christ, but of your brothers and sisters and of little kids all over the world who are being executed, is to grow in faith. It is to take territory now. And the way God's people take territory now is by taking a step of faith. And then God goes to fight for you. You take a small step, and then God goes to fight for you. Verse 38 says, Men and women of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What I love about this is the same faith that's in them, it's the same faith that's in you. It's the same God, it's the same giver. In fact, some of you have more faith than them. Some of you have more. Verse 39 says, In all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. And here's where I want to focus this as we get to the close of this, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think this line right here, it's a little grammatically confusing. The vocabulary is a little weird. I want to just help you understand what it means. What he's saying here is that, look, there is this group of men and women throughout history, and they are not perfect. They are morons. They are imbeciles. But they stepped out in faith, and God went to battle for them. These are these snapshots of their life, and I want to inspire you with them. But here's what I want you to know. Their story isn't done. Some of you need to be added to this hall of faith. Here's what he says. Apart from us, they should not be made com- perfect. Perfect actually means complete or finished. What he's saying here is that the story isn't finished without us. Without us, this story isn't done. We're here now, and this story continues on. And what God wants to do is find anybody who will take a step, weak and broken and immoral and and frustrating as you might be. He wants to find anybody who will just take a step. And when you take a step, God will go to fight for you. I really believe that when God looks at the faith of my son to me, it makes him happy. But I really believe God claps the loudest when fearful, broken little girls trust their dad and they step out. And this is what we see that God loves to do. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. But God is doing something profound through the church now. And what he's saying to this group of Hebrews is this. I know that being affiliated, associated with Jesus is not safe. It's not easy. It is scary. I get that. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to remember you stand in a long line of people who've gone before you and they've given everything. And now the same faith that's in them is in you and it's time for you to take that step. And if you believe these are spiritual giants, you're wrong. They are normal men and women by and large who did very simple things and then God followed up and he did the rest. We'll close with uh, the very next verses in chapter 12. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the witnesses that this group of Hebrews and us here at Village Church East, who are the witnesses that we're surrounded by? 
All of, this, all of the heroes of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, right? All of them. It's interesting. The imagery here is of um, a race. And in heaven, there are people watching this race. It's interesting also, witnesses literally means martyrs. These people who have gone before you and given up their lives. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, men and women who have sacrificed so much, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Number one, uh, the author of Hebrews wants them to be inspired to take a next step and trust Jesus. Uh, God uh, inspired this writing for us to read now so that we would be inspired to take a next step and to trust Jesus and to walk by faith. And the first thing he says is, look, you've got, you got a crowd in heaven watching. People have often wondered and asked the question, do saints in heaven know what's going on on earth? And I really believe yes. In Revelation, actually, the martyrs looked down at earth and they say to Jesus, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, right? Uh, Here, it appears that there is awareness that the saints who go before us in heaven, the saints who have passed away, are observing and applauding and commending. And when they see even one small act of faith, heaven applauds and says, yes. And they take pictures and they put it on their fridge, metaphorically speaking. Number two, when you think about this race, Jesus is at the finish line. And he's not at the finish line sitting there saying, go faster. What's wrong with you? He's not like Mickey in, the, in a Rocky. Come on, Rocky. <laughs> he is the author of our faith, which means he's the one who saved us and brought us into a relationship with him. And he's the perfecter or the finisher, which means he's the one who's going to complete it. And I think Jesus just gets off the end of the finish line and he comes over us and he just helps our limping selves take one step of faith at a time. But Jesus is sitting at the end of the finish line without condemnation to those who are in Jesus without condemnation to Christians and saying, let's go. I got you. Take a step. I'll do the rest. Take a step. I'll get you further. And then finally, number three is this. When your faith is weak, your character fails, and you're not who you want to be, remember, you are in good company with every other Christian who's ever gone before you, your pastors included. And Jesus is the author, and he's the perfecter, the finisher. And so what I want to encourage each one of you to do, and this is the global big picture point of why we even wanted to do this series, is I want to just encourage each of you. I know you're weak. I know you're broken. I know you're frustrated. I know you're, you're disappointed over the past. I know you sense you're unworthy. And all of you are all over the board on all these issues. But all Jesus is saying is, trust me. Take one step and watch me work. Maybe your step is coming to Christ. Maybe it is petrifying to actually place your faith in Jesus, to trust him, to ask him to save you because you know, I've talked to many people who will not trust in Jesus because they know exactly the first thing he will ask of them. He will ask them to give up X, Y, or Z and they're not ready. Maybe your first step of faith is to trust that he is better than that thing he's asking you to give up. Maybe for some of you, your, your step is, I, need to, I really need to commit to being a part of Village Church East because this church is taking ground and I want to be a part of this. I want to be part of whatever God is doing. And for some of you, you're like, ah, I'm just kind of on the sidelines. I'm a spectator. And maybe some of you, he's saying, no, talk to Pastor Craig, talk to anybody up here and jump in with both feet and watch God work. Watch him transform you. Watch him change you. I can tell you, getting to watch the planting team over the last couple months, God has radically transformed them because they jumped in. It was very, it's very hard to jump into a church plant. 
but God has transformed them in profound ways, and I believe they took the step, and then God did the work. They took a step, and then God did the work. But that doesn't end with a church plant. It happens over and over. A village church of Bartlett, we have people who have never, ever gone to a church before, and they take one step, and then God just blesses it. For some people, it's giving. For some people, it's serving. For some people, it's a conversation. I don't know what it is, but here's what I know. The Holy Spirit will probably convict you and poke you and prod you and say, here's what's next. You move, watch me work. So uh, in behalf of everyone in Bartlett as well, we are one church in two locations. Um, I I come bringing um, so much prayer on behalf of our church. Every Sunday morning, you may not know this, but we pray for you. Um, Before I get up, I give them an update on you, and we pray for Pastor Craig, especially in 11 o'clock, because when I'm preaching, you're preaching. Uh, Right now, Alex Culpepper is preaching, and he's going to preach a 30-minute longer sermon than I am, which is, yeah, yeah. And, um, but we pray for you. We love you. And our desire is to be um, one church, um, two campuses, and to take ground for the kingdom of God together. I know we're also praying, um, what might God have next? Uh, I really get excited that one day, maybe sooner than we think, Village Church East is going to plant another Village Church. Maybe it'll be Village Church East East. <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> yeah, East Squared, something like that. Um, but that's part of what it means to walk by faith as a church um, in a season of safety is to take those steps and to pray and let God do the rest. So I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, I truly love you. I'm so grateful to read a list like this. And again, there are some men who and women who really took big steps, and then there are some morons who just seem to do really insignificant things, and you went to battle for them. And I'm so grateful God, that you really desire to use, um, to use us and to know us. God, trust is a beautiful thing, and it's so valuable to you, and you commend it whenever you see it. We're saved by pistis. We grow by pistis. We are, um, this is so central just to who we are as your children. And so, God, I pray um, even right now as Village Church East, as we think about what maybe next steps God might have for each one of us, that your Holy Spirit would do what you do best. Would you encourage, convict, challenge, and equip us to do whatever next step it is you're asking us to take? And God, we just do confess to you that, like my daughters, there's a lot of nerves and anxiety and worry and concern. God, would you clothe us with your Holy Spirit and would you empower us to take those next steps? Because honestly, in our flesh, we feel very weak. And so, God, as we celebrate communion, as we remember the cross, thank you that um, our greatest foes, our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, death, you, with finality, took care of on the cross and confirmed that through the resurrection. We love you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.